0: Welcome to the Something About Science podcast. My name is Megan from Azo Nano, and I'm joined by Skylar from Azon and Danielle from News Medical. We'll be bringing you a roundup of the latest research that is piquing our interest on our sector specific sites. Try
1: saying that one over and over again. In today's episode, we'll be covering questions that ask How did gout, the disease of kings, become a 21st century epidemic? What can satellite technologies
0: tell us about the state of global forest degradation? And can we finally find evidence of life beyond
2: our solar system?
1: Well, we're going to talk about love. Whether it be familial or something more than friends, love is something that we all experience. And while some loves can seem irrational and unexplicable, there are underlying biological mechanisms behind them. And oxytocin is a neuropeptide that is involved in social bonding and pleasure. And researchers from Michigan State University have been investigating the role of this hormone in heart regeneration. In an interview conducted by my colleague Amy, known to you listeners as producer Amy, and featured on News Medical, it was explained how researchers found that oxytocin boosted the ability of epicardial cells to turn into stem cells and proliferate. Investigating the effects further, the team looked at zebrafish, a model organism that's known for its regenerative abilities. It was found that removing oxytocin limited the regenerative capabilities of zebrafish. The researchers then went on to explain how the medical implications of such findings could include the treatment of those who have undergone a myocardial infraction. So that's my little uh, summary of this interesting piece of research about how oxytocin can lead to possible regenerative abilities
0: of the heart. They're quite difficult, aren't they, to generate from stem cells? It's like one of the groups that are one of the most difficult ones to regenerate because, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it the ones that were they're only generated right when you're born yeah it'll be there'll be something (laughs) (laughs) science comes in yeah but i know it's one of the different ones that's cool though
1: that's why it's significant is that it's a cell type that is difficult to sort of regenerate or sort of induce stem cell capabilities of so yeah it was interesting it's interesting that i think the idea of like a hormone that you get from social bonding and the importance of that social bonded on health like you think that obviously having a close social circle is good for your mental health but actually obviously the release of this hormone is actually good for your physical health in ways that you wouldn't expect
2: how much of your feeling of love comes from this hormone
1: i'm not sure i know that oxytocin is released and is one of the main things in terms of love, in terms of like a mother and child. Like it's oxytocin, it's released when contractions start in labour, I believe. Really?
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know it was
1: that it early. It definitely has a stuff. role in birth.
0: I think it's one of the key hormones that's, like Daniel was saying, is associated with these kind of key social behaviours and like companionship behaviours that we have. And it's like they always say that we're social creatures. And I think a lot of the time we think it's more psychologically when in fact it is biological as well
1: and you've got to realize and extrapolate to nature if other animals pair bond for Mm. life then there's going to be an underlying biological Mm -hmm. mechanism that's shared throughout all those different species like penguins bond for life and a few other bird species are known for it as well
2: i'm going to go in a completely different direction i think and i'm going to talk about bacteria and bioplastic that is ocean degradable So this is actually based on an interview published on Azom. And it follows on from an interview I did quite a while ago with Dr. Anne Meyer from the University of Rochester, in which she described her work that led to the manufacturing of biofilms using 3D printing. So her lab has created the first kind of 3D printer for printing live bacterial cells, which is very cool. But in this interview, I talked to Anne again, as well as Dr. Alison Santoro from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And they're working in a group alongside other parties as part of, I think it's pronounced, Nyreed biomaterials, which is creating a biopolymer that can be broken down by bioplastic degrading microbes in marine environments. I think the problem of marine plastic pollution is pretty well known, but I don't know if it's as well known that most of our so-called biodegradable plastics don't actually biodegrade in marine environments. Usually these plastics are kind of tested for degradation in facilities that don't have a lot of oxygen or they're processed at really high temperatures. But in oceans where it's cold and there's a lot of oxygen, they don't tend to break down as well. So this company called Mango Materials, or this group called Mango Materials, is making a PHB biopolymer that is made by bacteria as an energy storage molecule. And the bioplastic doesn't so much as degrade in seawater, so much as it's decomposed by the microbes. The group will also be using a 3D bioprinter developed by Anne to print living materials that have bioplastic-degrading microbes in them to accelerate the breakdown of bioplastics in the ocean. And it's really cool, there's this picture included in the interview of some living stickers that basically 3D printed bacteria in the shape of, they've printed them into letters, and they're degrading the bioplastic that they're placed on beneath them. And you can peel them off and place them onto bioplastic elsewhere and they'll degrade that bioplastic and start breaking it down. So the research has just entered its phase two, which will see them create different bioplastic degrading living materials that can be tested in expendable ocean instruments, so things that won't be coming back to land, but we don't have to worry about them just becoming extra materials in the ocean. And the PHB bioplastic that's been made is being turned into 3D printable filaments so that it can be printed into shapes that then allows the plastic degrading bacteria to be also 3D printed within the plastic structures. So obviously, like, plastic pollution is something that seems like this massive, insurmountable problem. But I think these kinds of solutions that are really nature-driven and also so scalable give me a lot of hope for the future when it comes to these kinds of issues. And also, we know that I love a 3D printing story. (laughs) You do. (laughs) I'm going to try and bring one into, like, every single episode.
1: (laughs) Maybe we need a 3D printing klaxon. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) That was really interesting. Interesting as well that I've noticed on... It's a clean tech, and it's a life sciences. A study uh, was recently covered that was about food packaging that was made from seaweed. So I think there's definitely like a concerted effort across different industries to sort of deal with this pollution problem, water pollution, ocean pollution. Definitely.
2: Yeah, seaweed and alginate. is usually used in seaweed studies, but also I think it's pronounced mycelium, like the mushroom. Yeah, mushroom. Yeah, yeah. All these kind of nature-driven or like bio-inspired materials seem to me to be the best path forward when we're looking at kind of tackling our waste problem because if you're using all these kind of new chemical man-made chemicals even if they can biodegrade, you have to then do something with those whereas if they're natural based you're kind of taking from the environment returning to the environment and kind of reducing your cycle of harm which sounds really obvious to say but I think the problem with these technologies is that Often less frequently scaled up and less frequently invested in. So it'll be interesting to see if these kind of things, because this group seems to have a decent amount of backing and a decent amount of interest. It'll be really cool to see what happens after phase two and see if they can scale up even further.
0: Oh, definitely. And I think one area of research that I always find quite interesting is utilizing bacteria and kind of like small microbes to degrade plastic. And I think it's fascinating that they can consume plastic because to us when we look at plastic and it's this kind of very like hard and very like sterile and <laughs> not very appetizing <laughs> material and even for those of us I think in, in biology who are more familiar with the different diets and things of different species and even from an evolutionary perspective I think it's quite interesting perhaps look into the future and if this is what there are bacterial or organisms that are kind of consuming this new industrial material what might that mean for the future and how might that affect current ecosystems and current food chains that's just something I think quite quite interesting as well <laughs> that is interesting I hadn't even thought about that
2: in terms of food chains like where those bacteria go afterwards and stuff
0: yeah I think another thing is also well, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it but there's an Instagram account called oh I can't remember the name of it but basically she has her own kind of um, optical microscope And she'll go and take samples from like ponds and things like that and basically look at them. And it's, I enjoy it because, you know, science communication and basically we'll have these really, really cool, really high definition videos and photos of all the different organisms that are in these just very small, like local water samples. And I've been following her for a while and she's posted a new video recently and it's a little bit sad, but she basically pointed out the presence of microplastics and it was something that you know this was a very kind of local pond with like not close to any I suppose kind of industrial pollution or anything like that yet already is kind of being consumed by the the rise in microplastics and I think anything that can kind of help address this or even help I suppose prevent it is is quite an important thing and it's like Skyly was saying it's great to hear that it has had a lot of funding and it's great to hear that you know in the future hopefully it will be taken up by by industry and there will be other things like it as well.
2: Yeah, one of the statistics that was given in the interview as well was that at the current rate, there'll be more plastic than fish by weight in the ocean by 2050. And 2050 is not that far away if we think about it. So as well as thinking about the plastic we're putting into the ocean, we also need some ways of tackling the plastic that's already in there. So these kind of technologies are good as well because they're not just thinking about how to limit the problem, it's how to solve the problems that we've already created, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, and I think the sticker element of that it's like an ease of use thing. It seems you know fairly easy for people to get the head around. Easy to use, easy to implement. And like you said, the bacteria can be embedded in the actual plastic, but then it can be stuck on via the sticker to pre-existing materials that exist in the ocean already.
2: Yeah, it looks really cool. I'll show you okay. afterwards, and <laughs> I encourage our listeners to go and check out the interview, which we'll put in the show notes as well.
1: Definitely. Well, to uh, kind of
0: carry on along the same line of topics. I'm going to be speaking about an article that we've recently published on our ASO Clean Tech website, which talks about all things climate change, ecosystems, clean technology and renewable energy. And I'm just going to read the title first, just to get your imaginations going. But it's titled, Weighing Earth's Forest Using a Space Umbrella. Ooh! So. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) Danielle. So I'm just going to give a little bit of background about this first. So following the first Landsat launch by NASA in 1972. Space technologies designed to study our planet have become one of the most influential implements in understanding how our planet is changing and responding to anthropogenic, which you can think of this as human-related, activities. In 2023, the European Space Agency will launch Biomass, which is a mission that aims to provide a space-based survey of the Earth's forests, allowing scientists to monitor forest biomass and quantify the impacts of deforestation and climate change. Now, COP26 saw 145 countries endorse a pledge focused on halting and reversing forest loss and degradation by 2030. After all, forests helped to reduce atmospheric carbon dioxide levels by absorbing it via photosynthesis and storing it in plant biomass. So just to help you picture this, I did a little bit of background research here. So researchers estimate that in one year, a mature tree will absorb 48 pounds, that's around 21 kilograms for our metric users out there, of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is loads. (laughs) And you think of, that's just one tree. And imagine an entire forest. I'm not gonna even try and quantify that. But it's great that this pledge has been made, but despite it being put in place, only with accurate data can we actually understand how forest degradation is impacting our climate and help to design strategies that can help protect global forests. Now, biomass, which is the mission that will go up in 2023, How is it going to actually work? Well, this space umbrella satellite, and yes, I can promise you that this is the technical term, utilises a new measurement technique to penetrate the forest layer and map hidden roots and branches. So the whole point of this technique being used was to basically give a more detailed, I suppose, view of, of forests and kind of a lot of the technology out there will only do surface layer, will only do say like the upper canopy. Whereas this new measurement technique, which is called a complete polymeric P-band radar system, can help to generate a 3D map of global forests, including, like I said, the root and the branches. So as well as this, we have a powerful reflector antenna on this satellite, which has already been fabricated. And with a targeted launch in 2023, the mission is in its last stages of development. And once it's in orbit, and I particularly like this part, the mission's data will be made public to everyone, which can help can give a consistent, unbiased assessment of the Earth's biomass. That is so cool. That's really cool. (laughs) I love the name of it as well. I know, I saw Space Umbrella and I was like, I need to see, I need to see what this is. And in the article, there is a handy dandy video for you to learn more about it, so I highly encourage you to check it out. So it's the
2: aim of the mission basically to completely quantify how much forest cover we have now and then see how it changes over time.
0: So I'm not sure if it's That's the kind of the core goal is to completely quantify it. I'd kind of need to do (laughs) some more fact checking. But I think the whole point of it is basically that we have a lot of satellites out there that obviously can kind of give more insight into the Earth and help to study the Earth. Like I mentioned Landsat. So Landsat is the longest running, I suppose, satellite series, you could call it, to kind of study the Earth. So with this one in particular, it's basically helping to give more detailed information relevant to deforestation and what are the impacts of deforestation and forest degradation and how is this affecting our kind of global climate so knowing I suppose the the changes to global forests and where the changes are it can kind of help inform strategies and other reviews into kind of how do we address global deforestation and how do we create strategies to help mitigate it and how do we what can those strategies do to help address increased atmospheric CO2 levels?
1: Brilliant. I think the fact that it's the data will be available to the public might encourage people to look for themselves and potentially spend more time in their like, forest areas and maybe, obviously, with all the appropriate clearance, maybe plant some trees themselves in, mm-hmm. in their local area, which would be good. No, definitely. And I think one other aspect of the fact that it will be made publicly
0: available, which I really liked the term unbiased is that it can give a very clear and, a you know, a very kind of just fact based evidence driven, I suppose, illustration of global forests, which I feel like when you're developing strategies, because it's open access and because you can access it, there are a lot of, I suppose, infrastructures and organisational infrastructures, whether it's grassroots or whether it's, you know, all the way up to kind of the UN there are no limits on being able to access this information and there are no limits on using that and creating strategies and creating even kind of like proposals to help address it.
1: This is one of my favourite topics. It's um, human genome evolution. Woo! Woo! (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I wanted to share this finding that was featured as a news piece on ASA Life Sciences. So you may remember, if you cast your minds back to biology class, that mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell hands up how many people remembered that sentence so they got a mark at gcse or equivalent examinations what you may not know is that they contain their own genetic information that is actually distinct from the dna that you find in the nucleus of the cell and that genetic information is actually carried down from the maternal line meaning that you inherit that information from your mother So in a paper published in Nature, researchers from the University of Cambridge have actually found that the mitochondrial DNA inserts itself into the nuclear DNA in one out of every 4,000 births. By first examining the DNA of over 11,000 families, and then furthering that to 66,000 individuals, the researchers have highlighted a new model of genome evolution, Now, the reason why this is significant is because it was previously thought that these insertions had happened and ceased to happen a long time ago, long before humans had even evolved and even further into the past when organisms didn't have mitochondria. For those who aren't aware, it is hypothesized that mitochondria came to be when a archaea engulfed a cyanobacteria. So these findings show that the insertion of mitochondrial DNA into the nuclear genome is something that continues to occur today. And I'm really excited to look out for more research in the future that can shed light on the implications of these insertions, the impact they have on human health, and just this phenomena in evolution in general. Oh, I love it. Every time that Danielle
0: comes in with something relating to human genetics or human evolution, it's it's great, <laughs> got to say. I also think it's fascinating that, I think a lot of people think that mutations or even these small genetic changes don't happen in what we consider ourselves as modern organisms, yet yeah, they continuously happen and are continuously happening. And, you know, a lot of the time we don't really know why, when or what the consequences are of them. And I think especially with something like you said, where it's mitochondrial DNA, it's this only very specific thing that we thought kind of just did the same thing and didn't really affect anything else, the fact that that's not true. Mm-hmm it will be quite interesting to see what the consequences of, of that are. And for those of us who are not sure, again, on what mitochondrial DNA is, when you do a 23andMe test,
1: and Danielle fact check me here. No, no, true, true. They go off your mitochondrial DNA, isn't it? To be able to get your... Ancestry. Ancestry. Cause... Because the fact that it's inherited in the maternal line, you can track your maternal line back to the geographical area in which it Came from. So
2: what about your paternal line? Did they have to do something different or is it just a maternal line that they trace through 23 me?
1: I'm not sure. I've only ever seen the maternal line traced. Interesting. I think it because it's a complete part of the genome that is inherited rather than half and half and then that's random it's much easier to track the maternal line because you don't have to... When you've got mitochondrial DNA, you don't have to think, oh, is this maternal or paternally inherited? You, you just know it's a given. Whereas any specific sort of allele, you mean you know one of them is going to be maternally inherited and one of them is going to be paternally inherited. But then the fact that you're only providing your DNA, if you wanted to decipher maternal or paternal, your parents would also have to contribute a DNA sample, mm-hmm. I presume,
0: yeah I think (laughs) I'm not sure (laughs) I think as well because everyone inherits it in the sense that like whether you're a girl or a boy yeah exactly yeah 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 Yeah, so if you think about that way whereas like if you're a girl you can't look at the Mm paternal like Danielle was saying it's complete whereas with maternal it will be the same so I believe is it your maternal haplotype is haplotype I feel like
1: haplotype. yeah and that's the thing that's tracked back over time and over geographical location there's a certain set of maternal haplotypes that you can belong to
0: yeah so and some of them are very 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 old so if you are any of the lucky few that have some that can be traced back to even kind of I feel like some of them are perhaps even as old as like when modern humans came out of Africa I feel like this needs to be fact-checked but like it is pretty cool it's how you basically track where you are that is cool that is really cool it is cool
1: and it's cool that i think everyone just thinks that you've got dna in your cell and it's this one recipe for proteins you know the usual spiel but actually you know in every cell you have this organelle that runs its own show practically evidently there's communication between the nucleus and the mitochondria and more so than we uh, previously imagined by these findings so there is crosstalk but that you know they've got distinct genomes and uh, it's really cool i like the idea that it's matrilineal Mm -hmm. one more argument for a matriarchy
2: (laughs) (laughs) this one was actually one of my favorite interviews i've ever done it was really great it was with sasha kwanz who's from eth zurich and he's an exoplanetary scientist who'll be co-leading the new center for origin and prevalence of life which was launched very recently The centre is going to be looking at how and why life arose on Earth, but also looking for evidence of life beyond our solar system. So for a bit of background context, extrasolar planets or exoplanets are planets that orbit stars other than our sun. And Sasha's team are going to be using indirect methods to look for signatures of life in the atmospheres of these planets. And these kinds of bioindicators are molecules that we know are produced by biological activity or predominantly by biological activity such as methane, oxygen, nitrous oxide and a couple others. Um, And what I thought was really cool is that we know that for about half of the time we've had life on Earth, we've been able to detect this through atmospheric signatures going back. So this gives us a massive window of time to look at other extrasolar planets and kind of hope for similar signatures. So they're not necessarily looking for life that exists now, but any evidence that it existed in perhaps the last approximately two billion years, which is pretty cool because it opens up this massive opportunity for these kind of signatures. And to look for them, they're going to be building new equipment, such as the Extremely Large Telescope, which is its actual name, the ELT, which will be a European-led project, and it will have a 39-metre primary mirror, which is five times bigger than any current ground-based telescope. It is extremely large. But perhaps the coolest thing is that the whole point of the centre is to collaborate between disciplines. There'll be groups of chemists, biologists, Earth and planetary scientists, astrophysicists, and the research will feed together to answer these questions, both about how life arose here on Earth and beyond it. And my favourite part of the interview was when I asked at the end if Sasha believed we would find life on other planets, and he said he was optimistic due to the sheer number of terrestrial planets out there and also this massive time window, but also because life is so robust. But he also said that he won't be disappointed if we don't find any signs of life after all of this because it proves just how special Earth is. And I really like that. And it's kind of insane to think that we could be the only place in our solar neighbourhood where life emerged and has survived for billions of years. And that in itself would be a profound discovery and that would be kind of mind blowing in itself. And the whole time I was interviewing him up until this point, I was thinking, oh, it'd be so disappointing if we're going through all of this effort. We don't even find anything. But the way he spun it was like, not finding something is a significant finding in itself. That really, I thought that was amazing. And anyway, it was a very long and very detailed interview in a brilliant way. I haven't touched on half of the interesting content that he included and he puts it much better than I can. So I would really, really recommend going to ASIO Quantum and checking out that interview because Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. He talks about the James Webb telescope and also about space missions that will be included in this and a bit more about that kind of collaboration between different disciplines as well. But yeah, it was a great interview. I loved hearing about it.
3: I think a lot of it is actually really in the title, Origin and Prevalence of Life. And it has to do with the fact that I think we have a long list of attributes or descriptive items that, you know, where we think What life does and how it behaves on Earth. But what life actually is, we have no clue about. We don't know when it arose and where it arose and how it arose. How do you go from you know chemical, you know, non-living matter to biochemical living matter? And at what point do you decide, no, it's living, no, it's not living. All these things are completely, completely unanswered. It's really in the title and I think one of the realizations in many, many disciplines that are working on this topic was that in order to really make progress, you have to talk to other disciplines because there will be limits.
1: That was really interesting and I really like the um, multidisciplinary approach. I think what you were saying at the end, the answer to the last question being a really nice thing to reflect on, one of the things that I like to reflect on in with this specific example is the fact that life could have emerged so many times and as exemplified by what we know about Earth's history is that actually life can be created but it can sort of lead to its own demise as well, mm-hmm. which is what nearly happened with Earth. So I like to think that there's a possibility that life could have arose on many planets, but ultimately sort of hasn't survived as long as it has on Earth or there hasn't been that overlap with life on Earth.
0: Definitely. And I think as well, what always kind of blows my mind is that even if there is something out there and by the time that we get the signature from it, the time gap between, say, what's happening on that planet or that solar system or that galaxy and what's happening in ours is just so so vast and so different that you have no idea what the current state of you know potential life is is out there and it's like you say it's great if we see something it's great if we don't there's just so many things we don't know and anything that we can get to help fill in I suppose the gaps of our understanding of how we got here and how life on here got here and potentially may have existed elsewhere as well it's all a bonus, really. Yeah, it all goes hand in hand. And
2: he did also say that, as an example, just looking at our nearest star, Proxima Centauri, I think it's how it's said. I'm sorry if it's wrong. But it has a small planet, roughly the right separation from the star to be at a temperature where, in principle, liquid water could exist. And that's just our nearest star. So just to kind of put it in perspective, when you zoom out and you really look at how many terrestrial planets could host life, I mean, it is pretty exciting that the fact that we could within our lifetimes find evidence of life outside of our solar system.
0: No, definitely. And just to kind of give a bit of background to our listeners who might not know. So one of the reasons that we look for water or presence of kind of liquid water on different planets is because that's where we hypothesize that the first organisms were kind of, I suppose, arose. So another kind of, I suppose, planetary object, let's call it, that has been under a lot of investigation is I believe it's one of Jupiter's moons that has a layer of frozen water and then liquid water underneath so evidence of, of life or the places that we look for life you know might actually there may be more places than than we think and I think any kind of organization that especially takes a multidisciplinary approach to this and puts a real focus on looking it is just such a great effort and it's something that I think will receive a lot of public interest in as well because we're all curious yeah. we're all mm. curious
1: i think the most recent hypothesis of where life could have originated on earth is in hyperthermal yes, vents events underwater but also these vents have a prominent concentration of sulfur in them and actually it was thought that the first there's been microbes that have been found that actually metabolize using sulfur whereas other organisms would metabolize using carbon and oxygen in their place so it's uh, hypothesized that these could have been some of the earliest organisms so it'll be interesting to know or find out in the future whether one of the signatures they're looking for is these sulfur containing compounds as well
2: yeah it's interesting because um sasha was saying that some of the signatures that you look for as evidence of life can be created by like other things Mm -hmm. as well so it makes it difficult because you've got this interference effectively That is making it harder to see. Even if you found, for example, I don't know oxygen or CO two in an atmosphere, doesn't necessarily mean that it was created by life.
1: I always think in terms of obviously in the news recently. There's been a lot on virology and Mm. what is it? What is it that actually makes something life? If if we're looking for life, what what constitutes as life? Is it that it can self replicate? Is it that it can metabolize? So it'll be interesting to know sort of what the parameters are that they're using for life. It is interesting because especially when you look at things like flora, even like plants, like
0: (laughs) hypothesizing here, imagine if you say had a planet that has these kind of like plants or algae or whatever it is or very, very small microorganisms. It's, you know, do we still class that in life in the sense of is it important? Is it, do we value it the same that we value our own planet and our own organisms? Like how, it's like, how do we, I suppose, quantify the information and think about it? With respect to kind of our planet, I think one thing that I think we should kind of keep in mind or think about moving forward is that we have kind of have to broaden our views on, I suppose, what we're expecting to see and maybe almost lower our expectations of yeah. it. The green man might not actually be a green man, maybe a very, <laughs> no, very small no, Michael definitely. wasn't.
1: I was going to say... Um, obviously, one of the key sort of things in the definition of life that we're using at the moment is that transfer of information and genetic information. So I'd be interested to know whether one of the signatures they're looking for are any nucleic acids or potentially amino acids or whether they're open to the idea of a whole different system for the transfer of information mm-hmm. based on a completely different world that we're, we're unaware of in terms of chemical composition.
2: I think also what you've got to remember is that we're still building the technologies that we need to even look at Mm. atmospheric composition. Like the James Webb telescope is amazing, but now we also need this other extremely large telescope. We need space missions in terms of there might be a gap between what we understand as life and how what life could be and maybe what we don't understand, but also what we can physically look at and record given where we are at the moment so it might just be that the steps we take at the moment and in the next 25 years bring us to a certain point and then within that time we create new technologies or means of looking for life in, in of different categories yeah. i don't know how best to phrase it but yeah i think as much as it's a question of what life is which i guess is the second part or the other part of their projects as well like as much that this looking at extrasolar planets is one part of the centre, but the other part of the centre is looking at focusing on life on Earth and how we think about it and how it arose and why it arose and all of these questions that you guys are very rightly so bringing up. So it'll be interesting to see what comes from not just Snash's research, but also the other half of the centre as well.
3: The feeling I have, there's so much enthusiasm about this topic, not only here, but literally throughout the world. And not only from astrophysicists or biologists and chemists, from so many people. I think it's not impossible. We just have to do it right. We have to be nice to each other, collaborate with each other, you know, make everyone understand that this question is bigger than any one of us, for sure. So, you know, let's put aside our ego and I think then we can pull it off. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but it's uh, in the end of the day, I really feel we can make this work.
2: I think it was mentioned before when we were talking about the bioprinting study as well about funding and as part of the interview we did talk a little bit more about why people should care and why people should invest and it's almost what we were talking about about lowering our expectations or what we're looking for there. I think it's interesting to think that If we went through all of this and we found an example of a microbe on a different planet, what would it mean? And obviously it won't necessarily reflect much about our world necessarily, maybe, or it's not. We're not going to be looking for a backup planet, for example. But it's cool to think of it as just you know science in pursuit of science like knowledge not necessarily with any kind of commercial focus or trying to save our planet or any sort of thing driving us like this no sort of urgency it's just this idea it's almost like old-fashioned science you know you're just doing it just because you want to know the pursuit you know answer, of knowledge. Yeah, yeah the pursuit yeah. of knowledge Science just,
1: for the sake of science
2: yeah and it's one of the oldest questions out there isn't it is there life beyond earth and it's cool obviously and Sasha said it himself it's difficult because this kind of research requires so much funding and it's a decent question to ask can this money be spent elsewhere do we with everything going on in the world right now do we need to be spending millions and billions of pounds or dollars on a massive space mission to look for these life signatures and it's a valid question but i mean maybe it's privileged of me to say it but i think i like the idea of we waste so much money on things all the time anyway i mean the, the distribution of what i'm not going to go into the distribution of well. but i'm just saying that maybe it's cool that something like this is just simply after an answer to a question yeah and it doesn't have to have any like greater meaning beyond Psycho- the fact that we yeah. did it
0: <laughs> i think i believe and i feel like it all boils down to one of the most natural things that i suppose we have as higher cognitive beings is curiosity and i think one thing is supposed to kind of add to that is if we don't try will we ever know and will we be okay with not ever knowing you know i think that's something that we'll continue to battle with and all the points you've raised are very valid and very much applied to that and you know curiosity is a very pure thing and i think it's nice that it drives things as well this is so deep
2: I know. <laughs> I like it though. It was. I think this is why it was my favorite interview. Because on one side of things, it was like, "Wow, cool! just aliens and space and rockets and all this kind of stuff." But on the other side, it was actually kind of profound. You know, why would they doing it? And did you leave the interview a little bit like spaced out? Like, what I was pun like, intended. Fun intended. Fun intended. <laughs> why am I here? I like floated out of that interview room. I think I said to you, "I was like, oh, it went so well. I
0: loved yeah. it." <laughs> So I'm sure many of our listeners and even some of my podcast co-hosts here will have experienced some form of physical therapy following injury. And although we might not have done it for as long as we should have, the benefits of physical therapy are undoubted. After all, muscle and joint rehabilitation can have the power to restore movement that was once lost. Even if it's something as simple as being able to flex your fingers or being able to run again. Still, for many across the globe, physical rehabilitation remains out of reach as a lack of available and accessible physical therapists puts pressure on the ever-growing waiting lists of healthcare systems. Now I'm gonna talk a bit about a piece of content recently published on our ASO Census site, talking about a group of researchers based at MIT that have developed a motion monitoring system called Muscle Rehab that uses sensors for autonomous physical rehabilitation. The muscle rehab system comprises three main features. It has an electrical impudence tomography, a bodysuit with body motion sensors, and I highly encourage everyone to go check it out just so you can see what this bodysuit looks like. And when I say bodysuit, I mean full on bodysuit. And also a virtual reality headset. So one benefit of this system that I think is pretty cool is that the sensor-based monitoring gives the patient a level of autonomy without actually comprising the accuracy of the data required for recovery. So often when you have unsupervised or autonomous systems, especially for physical rehabilitation, it relies on the individual who's undergoing the treatment or undergoing the therapy to actually kind of give the feedback and give the updates, which can kind of offer a subjective opinion of actually what is going. So it's not necessarily the most accurate which is you know no fault on the person itself but can actually hinder the therapy and the results of their therapy and how well the rehabilitation is going to go so the team hopes that the muscle rehab could actually facilitate more accurate quote-unquote at-home rehabilitation which would significantly impact physical therapy as it relieves the pressure on the very long and in-demand waiting list for pts and improves patient accessibility I kind of like this story because I think it touches a little bit more on the broader topic of at home and point of testing treatment and how that might change in the future as people kind of start to take a little bit more, I suppose, authority and um, autonomy on, on their healthcare and even kind of thinking about accessibility and what it would mean for individuals that can't easily get to healthcare institutions or healthcare institutions aren't accessible. I agree.
2: <laughs> is, this, is this the green suit that Bethlehem is
0: yeah. yeah, so just to kind of illustrate the image, the suit itself, I believe, is kind of all in black with these little... I suppose dots on like if if anyone's seen Andy Circus and like what he wears to act as golem, it's something very very similar to that and at the moment the suit itself monitors therapy for I believe it's one of the muscles in our thighs so that's kind of where the focus is at the moment but they're hoping to move to the groin area as well and obviously other areas of the body but again I highly encourage you to check out the image it's just quite interesting and I do enjoy the thought of people wearing it in their own homes I have to say <laughs> I
2: had to do physiotherapy. I compressed to my vertebrae a while back and I was so bad at doing my Mm -hmm. physiotherapy. I literally still have issues now because I didn't do it. Mine's exactly the same. Yep. (laughs) But still, like I went to see like a physio recently and they were like, you should do this. And I was like, yeah, I will. And I just, you thinking about it now, I was like, oh God, I never did a single Mm -hmm. exercise. But I have to say, I don't know if I had to put on a morph suit every single time I did it. I'm not sure that would encourage me to do it more frequently. But I think I'm just really lazy.
0: No, true. But I suppose, you know, we're very lucky living in the UK that we have, you know, the NHS mm. and we have that. But a lot of countries don't have a public funded healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, especially because of the long waiting lists and the inaccessibility to healthcare, you know, <laughs> lots of money, morph suit.
2: Yeah, to be fair, if I paid like five grand to get the physio, I think I would
0: probably do it.
1: Suck up and wear the yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Sometimes maybe people who struggle to sort of like read instructions or understand how written instructions translate to an actual physical movement, something like this would be really helpful for them. They might actually need to, to see it. And obviously, once you're out of that consultation, you're not going to see a, a person actually... Uh, physically do that movement again unless some, maybe you have access to a recorded video so this might give support to those people who struggle in that respect no,
0: definitely and I think it definitely kind of ties into the, how medical devices and you know kind of monitoring systems in healthcare are are changing to kind of more reflect or at least I like to think they're changing to more reflect the needs of of the individual and of the person actually undergoing the treatment and anything that we can kind of do to help improve that and help improve that experience personally I think is quite a vital component of medical devices as we do continue to transition to a
1: more technology focused society. Yeah it's not just about making I mean obviously it's equally as important but it's not just about making it easier for the healthcare provider it's about making it easier for the person who's receiving that treatment. Mm -hmm. No 100%. We're uh, going back to high school level history actually rather than science fun little fact I did a course called medicine through time and we learned a lot about medical science through uh, the ages and it's a personal interest that stayed with me post study and um, which I don't think you can say for the majority of high school education but it actually has stayed with me and I'm very interested in it so when I saw that gout is actually a 21st century epidemic and not just a disease of kings as it was previously known I thought I would bring it to the table so gout disease of kings and now a 21st century epidemic is the title of an article published recently on News Medical. And shockingly enough, around 3 million Americans have gout, a disease previously thought to be restricted to the excess and indulgence of kings of the past. So strong is the link between gout and the rich that it was, gout actually used to be a status symbol, so people would, would boast about having it because it showed that they had enough money to buy sort of like game and other animal proteins such as pork which I thought was quite astounding. For those who don't know, gout is actually an arthritic condition that occurs when a high concentration of uric acid is present in the blood and then uric acid crystals actually accumulate in the joints causing inflammation and pain. Then a higher than normal concentration of uric acid can be due to too much uric acid being synthesised but equally when it can also be caused when the kidneys are compromised and cannot work to remove that uric acid. And there is some link between the game-loving nobles of Tudor times, as a diet rich in animal proteins such as pork is linked to gout, and other lifestyle factors such as alcohol can also exacerbate this condition. Now you may be asking, how is gout a 21st century epidemic? Um, We live, we're not in the Tudor times anymore, no one's there eating uh you know uh, a hog yeah, roast no, every yeah, no one's going roost. out getting the no, deer for dinner yeah no one's having a hog roast every night but in recent years the US has seen a significant rise in cases due to um obesity levels but also the use of diuretics that are used to treat high blood pressure so lifestyle changes can ultimately help in the treatment of gout but equally um so can anti-inflammatory medications and I just thought this was a nice example of history and medical science coming together for a neat little story of how seemingly uh, eradicated that's in uh, little quotation marks diseases can actually reoccur. One of the things that
0: Danielle has spoken about is how it was actually a status symbol. I think I believe was it teeth as well if you had bad teeth that was another status symbol because it showed that
1: you could eat sweet things and
0: yeah to the point of where like (laughs) <laughs> all kind of the richer people in all the times had really bad teeth and all the so-called quote-unquote peasants had good teeth or like had better teeth at least.
1: Yeah, and I think like they would even make do things to make the teeth look worse. Yeah,
0: yeah, they would. Oh, it's it, it does kind of, it makes me laugh what people used to think were the things to do or the things to be, like postmodern <laughs> medicine. It's just, it does kind of blow my mind. But I feel like with gout, it's definitely one of those things because it's like you say it does affect so many people and I think it's perhaps one of those conditions that has got a little bit of you know a stigma attached to it. Yeah definitely. In the sense of whereas you know maybe people don't want to admit they've got it or maybe they don't want to go and even kind of go in for treatment because you know when you think of gout a lot of the time you think of if you had like UK education heavy the eight, very large individual and I feel like There should definitely be more awareness and more effort to, you know, show how important it is to get tested or to get treated and that getting treatment is fine. And there are many, many people that are affected by it. It's like you say, it is a 21st century epidemic.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to highlight as well that whilst those lifestyle elements that I mentioned such as diet and alcohol consumption can exacerbate gout but actually there is a genetic link Mm -hmm. and like I mentioned as well if the kidneys aren't working properly they can also lead to gout so it's not always something that the individual I think maybe that's where the stigma comes from that you've brought it on yourself that the diet isn't good enough but actually it can be genetic or it can be something involved in the kidneys and obviously that's no fault of anyone and that there should be no stigma attached yeah. to that no definitely and fun fact this may also need fact checking but I
0: believe figs also can um, worsen the condition if you have gout, can also kind of worsen the symptoms of it so figs this is going back to a previous conversation we had today but you know in figs yes the wasps I know you're going to say, that's why I don't eat figs. No. No, it freaks me out. I've tried it. No. No, it (laughs) is. It's a bit weird. You know what? I'm going to fact check this in real time.
1: Real time fact check.
0: So for our listeners, like a lot of fruit species, you're going to have a male and a female. You have male and female species of plants and you also have that for figs. And to kind of help pollinate the species, you often have insects such as bees and wasps to help pollinate the female because they go through sexual reproduction rather than asexual reproduction. So what happens is that the female wasp crawls inside through a hole so narrow that she loses her wings in the process and becomes trapped. So you have your little fig and then usually it's like the end of the fig, the wasp will crawl inside. So if the fig is a male, the female wasp will lay her eggs inside and then the eggs will kind of hatch and burrow out, right? Which will turn into little baby wasps and fly off, mm-hmm. a happy and they ending. will, yeah, and they will carry the fig pollen with them to kind of continue the pollination process. But if the wasp climbs into a female fig, she will pollinate it, but can't lay her eggs inside, so she dies. And then what happens, this, you know, this is evolution at work, people. The female fig produces an enzyme that digests the wasp completely. So the crunchy bits are seeds, not wasp parts, in case you're wondering. But yes, there is a dead wasp contributing to the growth of the fig.
2: Okay, well, that's the wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening to Something About Science. And don't forget to check out the content discussed, as all links are in the description. And that's all from me, Skylar, and also Megan and Danielle. And we'll see you next time.
0: If you enjoyed listening, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider, sharing this episode on social media, or with friends, family and colleagues you think might enjoy it as well.
1: This episode was brought to you by Azo Network.
0: We'll be back soon with more discussions about science.